Now, you know the subject this morning, unction in preaching. Somebody has said, no one knows how to preach. And that is surely true. The best of men are only beginners. And there are great mysteries wrapped up with the subject, and not least with this word that we call unction. There are different ways to approach the subject. One way could be to take up the relevant words in the New Testament that relate to preaching and to preaching with power and unction, exousia, authority, dunamis, power, parasia, boldness. Um, These are important words. We do need to study them. Someone has said that authority is the right to command. Power is the ability to command. Well, these words... Uh, as we know, are there and uh, plentifully present, both in the ministry of our Lord and, significantly, in the ministry of the Apostles also. Well, I don't intend to approach the subject that way. I want to look at it more generally, and I want to start, perhaps taking a leaf out of good John Gill's commentary, I want to start by saying what unction is not. What unction is not? First, It's not something connected with place, with a pulpit or with a church. That is not unction. Well, it may seem perfectly obvious to us, but yet I think it's worth to be reminded of it. I was reading just again the other day of the occasion that Knox describes (coughs) Mauklin in Ayrshire when George Wishart arrived there to preach. The church was shut People were indignant, they belonged to that church, but uh, they wanted to force an entry, but Wishart wouldn't hear of it. He said, uh, Brother, Christ Jesus is as potent upon the fields as in the kirk, and I find that he himself often preached in the desert at the seaside and other places judged profane, more than he did in the temple of Jerusalem. It is the word of peace that God sends. No blood shall be said, no blood shall be shed here, he said, no trouble over church building. So Knox says the whole multitude stood uh, and sat about him uh, around a dike in the fields. God worked so wonderfully with him that uh, one of the most wicked men in the country, Lawrence Rankin, Laird of Shiel, was converted and so on and so forth. But it's uh, we spend most of our time um, preaching in buildings possibly too much of our time but uh, it's a great truth that Unction is not connected with place or pulpit or church. Secondly, unction isn't to be identified with the voice or the manner of the speaker. You know, there were those who sought to follow McChain's way of speaking after his death. And that's happened uh, in various ways. In the Highlands, maybe still for all I know in some corners, there used to be a sort of sing-song delivery that was counted as something specially spiritual. And in Wales, there used to be what they used to call the howl, or the hole, preachers in the hole. And what they meant by that was that he had adopted a certain uh, manner of delivery that uh, was intended to suggest something particularly moving and inspiring. Well, where do these things come from? Well, I believe they've come from the mannerisms of certain eminent servants of God, and uh, after their demise, others took them up and tried to imitate them copy them, to make them a tradition. Well, that isn't unction, is it? Unction is not something that can be turned into a tradition, can't be imitated. 
Anyone who tries to do it is really worthy of the rebuke that the exorcists were given. You remember at Ephesus, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who, who are you? Unction is not in manner or voice. And we can go further and say unction is not in gifts of any kind. It's not simply not voice or manner, but it's not in the gifts of a person. Now there are varied gifts, aren't there? And no one should be in a pulpit without gifts. But some men have a personality that is warm and uh, enthusiastic. Um, others are quiet, undemonstrative. Different gifts, different personalities. And unction is not identified with any particular gift. The, the truth is that a man that has unction will do more good in the long run, it's real spiritual good, than anyone with the best, highest gifts in the world. It's not gifts. That don't, that, that's not what makes the real difference. And then, uh, is it necessary to say it? I think it is necessary to say that unction has nothing to do with the length of a sermon. I'm afraid in our circles we sometimes do give the impression that uh, a good sermon is necessarily a long sermon. Orthodox sermon is a long sermon. But at least 45 minutes. Well, you know, Donald Cargill is said to once preach for 20 minutes, would you believe? No less than Donald Cargill. And I was dipping again the other day into that wonderful rare old book, The Martyr Graves of Scotland. Wish that should be republished, but um, by J.H. Thompson. And Thompson says in that book, he says, uh, he's talking about James Fisher, the man who wrote that great catechism that we still use. Like all the early seceders, Fisher preached short sermons. Sometimes they would be no longer than a quarter of an hour. And he rarely exceeded 40 minutes. Indeed, he goes on, brevity was one of the secrets of the fathers of the secession. A noted minister was once asked by a young man looking forward to the ministry for advice as to his future work. And the answer was this. Be short. Begin well. Go on. And when you see all the people eagerly listening, close and be certain they will remember what you say. Well, I think it is very important. Unction is not length, and any confusion on that point is likely to very, be very burdensome to our people. Fifthly, unction is not something that can be written down. Can't be retained, can't be transmitted. It's like the manna that fell in the wilderness has to be enjoyed at once. It's a remarkable thing. It's part of the divine mystery, isn't it? We can read the sermons of men who had unction. And we can observe in those sermons often the effects of unction, can't we? But the unction isn't there. The unction isn't in the book. Unction isn't something that can be printed and passed on. <coughs> it can't even be passed on by uh, cassettes or CDs. That's a reason why Dr. Lloyd-Jones was very much against the idea that people said, well, we don't have good ministry where we are, so we meet on Sunday and we, we listen to recordings of your sermons. He was all against that. We should meet in the living presence of the words spoken in dependence upon Christ. To think that anything can be a substitute for that uh, is a big mistake. Unction is not something that can be retained, transmitted, handed on in any fashion like that at all. 
And that point leads to a sixth point, and I'm almost through my negatives. Uh, Unction is not the sermon. It's not the sermon, no matter how good the sermon may be. So a sermon may be accurate, faithful to scripture, well-arranged, illustrated, applied, not wearisome, and yet it may not have unction. And I'm not saying that these things are unnecessary. They are vital. We must give our best care, our best time to sermon preparation, of course. But when we have done that, the sermon is not unction. And is a real danger, I think, with the duties that press upon us of our becoming too exclusively occupied with sermon preparation. We can even become kind of sermon-preparing machines. Danger. The sermon itself is not unction. And seventhly, very briefly, tempted though I could be to elaborate on it, unction is not to be identified with church office. It certainly ought to be found in those who are called to the ministry of the word. But there are things higher than church order. And it's a wonderful fact that in parts of the world today where the gospel is advancing with power, uh, in more than one instance, Cuba, China, elsewhere, going on not through regular church order, but upon people who have been given unction and are using it to speak and witness and for our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is an important fact. Let us never identify unction with office as though the two things are inseparable. Now, moving on. Definition of unction, insofar as we can define it. Surely we can say this, that unction is what accompanies real fellowship with Christ. It is the presence of God with the messenger, so that the hearers are conscious of someone else present, and someone whose word means more to them than the word of the preacher. What is preaching? Well, preaching, we say, is speaking on Christ's behalf. But not on behalf of Christ, who is absent, whose work we have to do. Oh no, preaching is something much more glorious than that. He is himself present. It is his work more than it is ours. Now, I don't know if you know Kidder's book on homiletics. It's a very good book. An old Methodist. I treasure Mr. McRae Stornoway's copy, which, I, which he gave me. Kidder says, Unction in preaching may be considered as the joint product of the Spirit's influence on the heart of the speaker and on the hearts of his hearers. That's a good summary. Joint product. Spirit's work, influence, on speaker and hearer. Now some texts. As of sincerity in the sight of God speak we in Christ. My speech was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Our gospel came not to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Colossians 1, Paul speaks of the result of God making known the riches of his glory through preaching, which is Christ whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now the words, whereunto I labour, 
striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul is not preaching alone. Something far greater is happening. We are, he says, labourers together with God. Apostle Peter, exactly the same. Speaking to the Sanhedrin, we are his witnesses, so also is the Holy Ghost whom God has given to them that obey him. Peter speaking, 1 Peter chapter 1, those that preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. So these texts are right on our subject. And you know, I'm sure, that they are controversial texts and very controversial in some periods of the church's history. For example, in the 18th century. The 18th century, (coughs) Whitfield, Wesley and others pointed to these texts as evidence of what the cause of the low state of the church was. That these texts were not being experienced. Pulpit had descended to something other than what God meant it to be. Led to considerable controversy. Because the response from the clergy, Bishop of Gloucester and others, you can read it in Whitfield's works, the response was, these texts belong to the apostolic era. Charismata that was miraculous, that is passed away. And you men are fanatics and enthusiasts and misleading the people. That was the controversy. Very considerable controversy. And how do we answer that? Well, briefly, Christ has surely not limited the manner in which he builds his church to the apostolic age. He built the church in the first century by himself being present, speaking through his messengers. I, he said, if I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Our Lord was there. Our Lord was speaking. Holy Spirit given. Now, are we to suppose that our Lord's way of building the church changed when the apostles died? That there is some way in which Christians of sinners can be made Christians apart from what we find there in the New Testament? Believers, sinners who become believers are people who hear the voice of the Son of God. And that's connected with this whole subject of preaching. Of course our Lord is working in the same way as his word is preached today. Now, Whitfield and Wesley and these men, they gave the best possible answer to that argument. In a sense, they had no time to be writing lengthy books and uh, certainly not getting degrees writing on the subject. And so, No, no, they preached, and they preached in such a way that the people could see that what they were reading of in the New Testament was actually happening in their day. That's what we need, brethren. We've had enough, really, of discussions and arguments. We want demonstration. And God gave it through those men in the 18th century. Now, the whole history of the church confirms this truth, that that kind of preaching belongs to the people of God in all ages. John Calvin says, we cannot receive a single word which is published and preached to us in his name unless his majesty is there present and unless we are before him. John Knox has this beautiful description of preaching. I'm sure you know it. It's uh, our Lord, he says, presiding at a great feast, a banquet. He's the master of ceremonies. He says, I did distribute the bread as of Christ Jesus. I had received it. 
Of this I am assured, that the benediction of Christ so multiplied the portion that I received of his hands, that during the banquet the bread never failed. You see what Nocky said? I'm just an instrument, I'm just a channel. Here's the bread, here's the blessing. He, he, his benediction, that's preaching. <coughs> and here in Larbert, do we need to go anywhere else? You think of those days when people came to Larbert. They didn't go to Edinburgh or Glasgow, but they came to Little Larbert. Why? Because there was a man here who wasn't allowed to preach in Edinburgh or Glasgow. Robert Bruce. And preach with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. You have read, I'm sure, of Robert Bruce and that story of the day when m many had gathered here in Larbert and he preached in the morning with great freedom and then was to preach after lunch and then others had long journeys home, some on horseback, some walking, but uh, Bruce didn't reappear after lunch. And uh, people found the bellman and said, did he know where Mr. Bruce was? Could they, could they get him? Could he get him? He did know, he thought he could, so he went to the place where Bruce was usually found at this interval lunch hour, and he came back and said, no, he said, I don't think he'll be coming back today. Well, he said, what do you mean? Well, the bellman said, Calderwood says, the foolish bellman. The foolish bellman said, I stopped at the door because he was talking to someone, and I heard him say, I won't go unless you come with me. Well, it may have been an ex exceptional. But you know, it leads us to the heart of this business of preaching. Someone else is to be present. And Bruce knew it. Perhaps you know of Thomas Cook, greatly used evangelist in the 19th century, faithful preacher. Well, on one occasion he was going to um, preach at a Methodist church and there was great uh, enthusiasm and excitement at the prospect of his coming. And the house where he was to stay was particularly uh, excited. Well, the maid in the house wasn't a Christian, and she was sent to the butchers on the Saturday morning to get the meat, and when she was getting it, she unburdened herself to the butcher in a godless way. She, she said to the butcher, you never heard such excitement as we've got in our house this weekend. We've got a preacher coming. You would think it was Jesus Christ, she said. Well, Tuesday she had to go back for another uh, duty to the butcher. And the butcher says to her, well, did Jesus Christ come? He came, she said. He came. Something had happened to this woman. She wasn't the same young woman as on Saturday. Well, that's preaching. It's the evidence, I believe, that shows how very wrong those men were who opposed Whitfield and the others. Now, Moving on further. Unction, the unction that comes to preachers has a parallel to the unction that first came to our Lord. There is a connection, there is a resemblance and a very important connection it is. In the Jordan, the Spirit of God descended on our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Why? He tells us, reading, you remember from Isaiah, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Even the Son of God in this world needed that 
mission of the Spirit given to him. And the effect of that mission, they wondered the gracious words that proceeded out of his lips. They were astonished at his doctrine. The work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, He which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. That's it. There's a parallel there. Spirit of Christ is given. Now, of course, I know, and uh, I mustn't digress, but it's very important theologically, the Spirit of Christ is given to all believers. There is anointing for all believers. That's true, isn't it? Yes, but perfectly clear from the New Testament that there is a particular endowment, a particular enabling of the Spirit that is connected with preaching. It was required of deacons in Acts 6 that they should be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that was true of every Christian, it wouldn't have been a distinctive mark of men to be set aside, but it was a distinctive mark. Stephen, Acts 7, full of the Holy Ghost, spoke. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. How often in the book of Acts we read uh, chapter 4 place was shaken where they were assembled together they were all filled with the Holy Ghost what next? and they spoke the word of God with boldness there is a filling and endowment of the spirit that is peculiar to preachers and to preaching and that's what we're speaking of you understand here and I say where this is genuine it bears real resemblance to Christ And it points to Christ. And it can do that. You know how it does that in Acts chapter 4. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. There was something in these apostles' message that unavoidably reminded the hearers of the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now those are great words in uh, Romans Romans chapter 10. Excuse me. Romans chapter 10, Paul says that sinners to be saved need to hear Christ himself. How shall they believe him whom they have not heard? Our authorised version needs a little improvement there. It's not how shall they believe him of whom they have not heard. It's how shall they believe him whom they have not heard. In other words, it is Christ himself present in the word with the preacher, that's a source of true salvation. And then Paul goes on immediately afterwards, and isn't it an interesting connection? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written? How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of, of peace. Beautiful? Yes. Beautiful. Messengers of Christ. Beautiful. Why? Spirit of God on them. An anointing upon them. They're not just men something more as a resemblance to the one who sent them. How shall they preach except they be sent? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that preach gospel of peace. Now, let me move on. Effects of unction. Effects of unction, I mentioned just two. Well, I I subdivided. Subdivided the effects on the preacher, effects on the people. On the preacher first. Consciousness of God, awareness of God, fear of God, love to God, knowledge of God, 
Isaiah chapter 11 says of our Lord, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Where there's unction, there's always reverence. There's no self-advancement. There's humility. There's no... There's a deliverance from self-consciousness. How important that is. There's a deliverance from the fear of man and deliverance from the opinions of men. Brethren, that's tremendously important in preaching. last thing we should ever be doing in preaching is looking over our shoulders for people to think, are we really being orthodox? Are we stepping out of line? No, no. We should be conscious of God's presence. Luther says... (coughs) Luther says, I have never troubled myself about not preaching well, but I have often been troubled and terrified that I might stand in God's presence and speak of his great majesty and glorious nature. Well, that's, that's the effect of unction. Robert Boyd tells us that he heard John Welsh preaching at the University of Saumur, or however you pronounce it, in France, great university city, distinguished people, great company present, And here's John Welsh, this Scotsman. And how does he preach? Well, Boyd said, he didn't seem at all affected or awed by the occasion, by the congregation, by the learned people. And he asked Welsh afterwards, what was the secret of it? Well, you can know, brethren, what the answer was. Presence of God meant far, far more to John Welsh than anyone present in the gathering. Thomas Hooker, the great Puritan preacher, it was said that he had such a sense of God upon him that when he was preaching, he could have put a king in his pocket. Well, I like that. But that's, that's, that's preaching. That's apostolic preaching. So the first effect of unction upon the preacher is this sense of God. Second thing that I mention is, where there's unction, there's love for men. In our Lord. What tenderness, what compassion, what pity. Lifted up his eyes on the multitude, moved with compassion. Now, we are sent with a message of amazing love, commending the love of God in Christ Jesus. God so loved the world. But that has to come through us. It's not just in our words only. It's been rightly said that preaching is is truth mediated through personality. (coughs) And to preach of the the love of God without knowing something of it and enjoying something of it is to try to persuade people fruitlessly. The effect of preaching has very much to do with the state of our hearts. It's not simply what is said, but who says it. The state of our hearts Now, uh, I have a wonderful sermon here, if I can read it with small print, from George Smeaton, preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the year 1843, height of the disruption, preaching in Perth, and he was asked by the Synod to publish this sermon, Acts 1, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He says, the Redeemer does not need skillful orators, but witnesses such as have seen with spiritual eyes and heard with spiritual ears. A witness must know what he testifies. 
and he has little liberty to speak of what the Lord has not wrought in him. Witnesses testify while the world stands of the love of God in Christ, of redemption through his blood, of the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Their sound must go into all the earth, but they do not testify what they have heard or read. For the Holy Ghost gives them a savoury experience of the tidings of great joy, which they proclaim to others. Many called ministers have nothing they can testify. For can he be a witness unto Christ, whose heart is not filled with his presence, and the love, the life, the spirit of Christ? Can he be a witness of the cross of Christ, who is not daily looking to the Lamb of God? So on. 1843. He shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And brethren, isn't it a certainty that the effect of this unction, this compassion and love for men, the effect is evangelistic burden and outreach. Has to be. Has to be. You know, sometimes people discuss, and not simply here in Scotland, but around the world, why is it that this revived Calvinism isn't leading to greater evangelistic influence and effect? Well, I believe this comes very close to the heart of it. We can have purest knowledge in our heads but have we got this in our hearts and if we have I say it will lead inevitably to evangelistic passion I could wish myself accursed says the apostle Paul from Christ for my brethren's sake what's that willing to have imparted willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. I am made all things that I might by all means save some. McChain they said he was dying, dying to have us converted. Whitfield, Cooper says he loved the world that hated him. The tear that fell upon his Bible was sincere. Think of any of the great missionaries. Henry Martin says I could bear to be torn in pieces if I could but hear sobs of penitence, if I could but see the eye of faith directed to the Redeemer. That's love. It's love uh, that bound up with unction. And love means, as I tried to say, it's bound up, isn't it, with, with our own condition. <coughs> what do we know of God's love? What are we experiencing of it? And you know, I don't doubt, I'm sure you don't doubt it either, that one of the great reasons why the devil works against the spiritual happiness of preachers is the last thing he wants in the pulpit are happy preachers. He knows what, what can happen when there are such people. Spurgeon has a good illustration. At least I think it's good. He says, you know, these great water pipes that run through the cities and they bring our supply to our rooms and to our homes and so on. Well, he says... We preachers are just like these pipes. We are conveyors of something. That's, what, that's all we are. But we have to be conveyors. And it's a great tragedy if any of those pipes get broken or, or filled or with, with rubbish. We've got to convey. And what do we have to convey? We have to convey above everything else the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dr. Kennedy's father, Minister of Kilernan, 
A brother minister said once to him, I wish I could enjoy preaching as you do. To me it is comparatively a toil. This good man replied, No wonder that I should enjoy it. For if ever I had a foretaste of heaven's own joy on earth, it is while preaching Christ crucified to sinners. Effects of unction, awareness of God, sense of God, reverence for God. Everything trivial has to be banished, nothing flippant in such men. And this love, love draws, love is the great essential of gospel preaching. You know, Rabbi Duncan would ever say, love is the great attraction. That's right. It's got to be in us. What's the effect upon hearers of unction? Well, just more or less headings. One, forgetting the preacher. Forgetting the preacher. And I like that description that Tom Allen gives. Second World War, he was an airman in London, uh, somewhat down, uncertain even about his spiritual life. He knew Lloyd-Jones preached at Westminster Chapel, so he went there. Disappointed. Notice on the door said, due to bombing, church isn't open today. But there will be a, a meeting at Victoria Hall, and said where it was, so he goes there. But when he gets there, another disappointment. It seemed that Lloyd-Jones wasn't there. And a man, he says, came forward rather apologetically, little man with suit and tie and red and prayed. Well, he said he was quite impressed by the praying, but then the same little man gets up to, to, to preach. And then he said, then something strange happened. He said, I completely forgot the man who was speaking. Uh, it was the word, not his word, mind you, he said, but the word was coming through him. And he goes on to talk about the mystery of preaching. And of course it was Lloyd-Jones. It was Lloyd-Jones. Unction. But that's, that's right, my friends. Where there's unction, preacher recedes. Someone greater is present. Secondly, where effect on the, on the hearers, inattention becomes impossible where there's unction. Surely does. You know, the man complained about Whitfield. He said, uh, normally when I go to church, he was a shipbuilder. He said, I can, I can almost build a ship during the sermon. But when this man preaches, I can't lay a single plank. <laughs> Attention becomes impossible. And a third effect, where there's unction, where there's unction, I believe children are benefited by preaching. You see, where there's no unction, it's because the preaching is too heavy and it goes to the intellect. Well, okay. If we're just speaking to the intellect of adults, that's not suitable for children. But preaching shouldn't just be to the intellect. It should be to the heart, to the conscience, to the will. And where there's real preaching with unction, children can sit under it with great profit. And it's a tragedy that that truth has been lost in so many churches. <coughs> Fourthly, where there's unction in the people, there will be a change. I don't mean to say they'll all be converted. Of course not. Some of them will get angry. Some of them will be distinctly hostile. But you know, people will not sit dead under preaching where there's real unction. Something happens. There's some effect. All right, we may not always instantly see it, but I do believe that this is true. And uh, if preaching goes on from week to week and nothing seems to happen, prayer meetings go on, no change, we need to think hard what is happening. Where there's unction, there's going to be change. Now, hindrances to unction. Let me mention a few or to use Spurgeon's illustration, 
What is it that gets these pipes blocked up so that the love of Christ doesn't flow through and the gospel doesn't? Well, a few things. I don't put them in order of priority, but as they came to me, I think lack of pastoral work among our people is a great hindrance to unction. Love for people doesn't begin and end in the pulpit. Of course it doesn't, we know that. We need to know our people, meet our people individually, personally, in their homes, understand their concerns. Preaching isn't something that can go on in the abstract. It has to go on in connection with real people and the people that we are seeking to help. Now, do you know the book by W.G. Blakey, For the Work of the Ministry? Very good book. Blakey. Blakey says this, The weak point in Scottish preaching has commonly been heaviness. And this has arisen from a tendency to an excess of dogmatic and expository teaching and a want of familiar fellowship with the hearers in the ordinary moods and workings of their minds. The preacher has too often stood on a pedestal, delivering his dissertations before the people or expounding to them God's dealings with men in former days. He has not so readily come down to their level, nor touched their actual feelings and difficulties and aspirations, nor sought to deal with them as he found them, nor, taking them kindly by the hand, endeavoured to help them on the way to heaven. You know, there may be a few exceptions, but generally it is true. Most used preachers are the best pastors, men who are often among their people, know their people, in the homes of their people. Mr. McRae Stornoway, the amount of time he spent in pastoral work was enormous. McChain, others, chain on a Saturday night, what was he doing? Amongst his people, especially the sick and the dying. James Stalker, in his book, The Preacher and His Model, says something that's very memorable. This is what he says. The effect of a sermon depends, first of all, on what is said, and next, on how it is said, and hardly less on who says it. We are so constituted that what we hear depends very much for its effect on how we are disposed towards him who speaks. The regular hearers of a minister gradually form in their minds, almost unawares, an image of what he is, into which they put everything which they themselves remember about him, and everything they have heard of his record. And when he rises on Sunday in the pulpit, it is not the man visible at the moment that they listen to, but this image which stands behind him and determines the precise weight and effect of every sentence he utters. It's a very disturbing quotation in a way, isn't it? But it's true. Our people have to know us. They have to know us in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. And we need to be, of course, the same men out of the pulpit as we are in the pulpit. So, a first hindrance, lack of pastoral attention. Secondly, and this may seem a contradiction to the last point, busyness is a great hindrance to unction. Busyness. So, when I say that we must cut some duties, curtail some activities, I'm not suggesting we curtail in the pastoral area. But we do have to have quietness, 
solitude. If we get locked into the pressure of routines, of constant interruptions, phone calls, emails, committee meetings, thousand other things, it's virtually certain there won't be unction in the pulpit. We need solitude. We need quiet. We must have it. Whatever else we cut out, mustn't cut out. Time for seeking God. I think more and more that the greatest problem in the ministry is our use of time. Problem of time. We have to have a disciplined program. And we have to see that the main priorities are kept insofar as we possibly can at the centre. We are called to speak to men in the name of God. Can't do that unless we ourselves seek closeness to God. Seek to live in his presence. And I'm not suggesting we need to be solitary to do that. But it must include solitude. And enough solitude. You know the poet who says of our Lord. Cold mountains. Cold mountains in the midnight air. Witness the fervour of his prayer. We need more of that. You look at those diaries of Andrew Bonner and McChain. As you read their diaries, you might think for a moment, these men don't do anything else but, but seek God and pray. Of course they did. They were very hard-working pastors. But the diaries give the priority. And that's what we need. Some men have set aside a day every month just to be alone, just to be quiet, with no specific duty. Pray, seek God, day a month. Well, whatever we do, uh, we need to think about it. And uh, it would be a great blessing to us, I think, myself included, if uh, we went home and thought seriously about what can we cut out? What can we cut out? And I say, busyness is a great hindrance to unction in preaching. Now, a third hindrance. Grieving and quenching the Spirit of God. Now that, brethren, obviously is a, spirit, is a subject all on its own. But it's too important just to pass over it. And here's an area, I believe, in which the devil is especially active. If he can mislead us, if he can cause us to sin in thought or word or action, and if he can prompt us to excuse ourselves, well, there's little hope of unction in preaching. Now, God is merciful, and it's true that not one of us is as consecrated as we ought to be. And it's also true, as McChain says, that Christ knows how to fish with broken nets. All that is true. But at the same time, if sin is tolerated in any form, the Spirit of God will be quenched. I once heard a sermon on the words, Samson went down. We can all go down. And that's exactly what the devil wants us to do. Now, one particular area I want to mention. <clears throat> in that connection, I can think of uh, what Oliver Cromwell did in Edinburgh in July 1653. He didn't do it personally. He sent a colonel to do it. But he had the General Assembly closed down. And would you believe it? The commissioners were marched for a mile from the Assembly Hall before they were dismissed. Well, whatever we think about that procedure, uh, what interests me, or the reason I'm mentioning it is, that no less than Thomas McCree, Jr., 
says that it wasn't entirely uh, a hindrance to the work of God. Why not? Because, he says, it was less to be regretted at this period as the meetings of the church courts were chiefly occupied with unseemly discussions between resolutioners and protesters. Well, that's saying a lot in a few words. don't need to explain to you what that controversy was. Nothing to do with any great principle of scripture indeed, but it was a mighty conflict. Protesters, resolutioners, David Dixon, great men on one side, Samuel Rutherford on the other side. What were they doing? Unseemly discussions. Well, that's really a mild way of putting it. What had happened there? Well, even these eminent Christians had been misled by the devil. And this is what he seeks to do all the time. If he can set believers against one another, if he can drive us into parties, if he can make us suspicious, but we ought not to be suspicious, if he can create animosities between brethren, he'll do it. He'll do it. Everything that will pull down brotherly love, he'll work at it. Scripture says, above all things, put on love. Above all things, put on love. Love is the bond of perfectness. chapter that the devil hates more than any other, perhaps, is 1 Corinthians 13. And the devil wants us to think the worst of fellow believers and the worst of other ministers of the gospel. And in that connection, I have to tell you, brethren, that I believe we were tempted seriously the other evening to speak against a faithful servant of Christ and to misjudge what he was teaching. I have to return to it in point of conscience as briefly as I can, but I have again looked at the necessary books. Do you remember it was suggested to us that uh, Dr. Piper confused works in justification that faith includes obedience and so obedience becomes introduced into justification so it's not faith alone I find as I turn to Piper again that is exactly the position that he repudiates he repudiates it very clearly he says referring to the new perspective men of course a detailed defence needs to be done on the historic Protestant view of the relationship between faith and obedience so that the two are not conflated as instruments of justification as many in biblical theological circles are doing these days. And then he goes on, same point. He says, there begins to emerge a coalescing of faith and its fruit. Some people today, he said, are treating faith and obedience as two ways of speaking about one response or as different only in the direction or intention rather than seeing the biblical pattern that faith as root remains distinct from works of faith as fruit though never inseparable and then he goes on to quote the Westminster Confession 11.2 faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification yet it is not alone in the person justified because when a person is regenerate of course New nature has begun, there will be other things besides her. But for justification, for our acceptance before God, faith alone stands alone. And he goes on to, to speak of the great battle of the Reformation, and we may have to fight it again. And rather than being contrary to Calvin, which I was amazed to hear said, I find the very opposite in this book, Future Grace. There are three references to Calvin. Two quotations. The two quotations are both endorsing what Calvin says. 
tally with him. The third quotation is simply a reference to say he's surprised that Calvin didn't analyse in Galatians 5 what Paul means when he says faith working by love. Surprised because he thinks so highly of Calvin. It would be helpful to, to Piper, to us too, if Calvin had elaborated on He's not disagreeing with Calvin. He's not condemning Calvin. And if you find what are the books he tells you to read on justification, Buchanan, he says, is a classic and goes on quoting from him. It couldn't be clearer. And if you want to see justification preached in all its clarity, read his passion of Christ. Well, brethren, it disturbs me greatly because I'm sure it's a mistake somewhere and a misunderstanding somewhere, but you know, this is a great danger we can fall into. The devil wants us to fall out, wants us to choose the wrong targets. Mark chapter 9, very, very relevant. relevant. He that is not against us is on our part. Sure, there are counterfeits. Sure, there are sheep that are really wolves. There are deceitful workers. But let us be very careful that we don't characterize men who are standing at the very front of the battle for the gospel in that sort of light. I said enough, but I urge you, brethren, to think it over. Let us be very careful about entertaining suspicions. I'll close then briefly with two words. <coughs> One is a word on a point of danger. And again, this is the whole subject. What's the danger? The danger is, take heed to ourselves. What is our experience? Yes, but you know, we can press that so far as we forget the great truth that we stand by faith, we preach by faith. We don't preach because of what we are. We preach because of who Christ is. I believe, says the Apostle, therefore have I spoken. George Whitfield once said he'd never go into a pulpit again if it wasn't for the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's right. So here's a balance needed. How greatly we need unction. How greatly we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, but don't let's take that so far that we forget the word of faith that we preach. And actually, I think this question of faith is of very great importance. Sometimes you hear people say, we've been praying for revival for years. We haven't seen anything. And I think there's something wrong at that point. Where does faith come into this? Our Lord says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your servants, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. If we ask believing, trusting in the merits of Christ, haven't we every reason to believe that the next time we go into the pulpit, we won't be there alone? Isn't that right? Isn't faith to do that? Doesn't the scripture says, the Lord is with you while you be with him? Are we to wait for another month or year or ten years to see some far off revival? Should we not instantly take these promises to ourselves and my friends, you know it well. This is where revival begins, at local levels, personal levels. Faith. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, says the Apostle. That's true. Faith comes into it. So that's my very last conclusion. Our need to believe in the willingness of Christ to bestow the Holy Spirit. It doesn't grudge it. And you know, before any awakening period, you know what happens? People are brought back to this awareness, the plenitude of the Spirit that resides in Christ to be given. 
how the Spirit is given, sometimes quietly, silently, sometimes suddenly. Horatius Bonner has a wonderful biography of John Milne of Perth, and he says how in 1839, <coughs> W.C. Burns and Milne of Perth <coughs> were just ordinary preachers. And in that year, something happened to them. They became different preachers. Same thing happened to, to, to John MacDonald when he was in Edinburgh. Something happened to him. And that can happen to us. And therefore, I wonder why it is that when we pray for revival, we are not more instantly praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be expecting. No, it's a terrible thing if we ever go into our pulpits not expecting anything to happen. That's what the devil wants us to do. One service, another service, following a routine. That should never be. We should go into a pulpit expecting great and glorious things. And uh, if I had time, and I haven't, I'll give you another quotation from the Smeaton, but I'll give you the gist of it. 1843, disruption year, we may lose everything. We will. Our man says our churches. All right, says Smeaton. It's in exactly such times that we may expect special help from heaven. Full communications of the Spirit of God to be given to us. No need to be disheartened. We can do without these things. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. We need that message, brother. Times may get more difficult. They may get much more difficult. Should we be dismayed? Not at all. Looking upwards. Glorious promises. Our business is to rest upon our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and to trust everything to him. Thank you, brethren. I've tried to be short. I've been a bit longer than I meant to be. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, so we come now to the question time. I think we should really leave the Piper controversy, um, I don't think there's any point or profit in um, continuing with it in public uh, at the moment. Um, it can be continued in private if, if folks so wish. And rather concentrate on the paper that was given this morning. Uh, one little question maybe just to start things off. You spoke about how unction couldn't be conveyed in uh, tapes and CDs and so on. Um, I remember reading in Lloyd-Jones' biography, I think about a, a sermon that he, or yes, a sermon that he gave on television, and that um, something wonderful seemed to happen, and you know he went way beyond his time and so on, and people seemed to receive blessings. So, can unction be conveyed through a television medium, or through the internet, or whatever? Well, it's terminology, partly, brethren, isn't it? Uh, um, I have a little connection with books, and I do believe that books can help people. Well, not because they're books, but because God can bless them and use them. So, of course, God works through books. God works through countless means. So, and it's very important. And sermons down in print and cassettes. Yes, I mean, I just driving to Larbert the other night. I heard a wonderful cassette in the car sermon. But, but the point was that. There's no automatic continuance of what took place when that sermon was preached. But the truth stands. The truth doesn't change. God can bless the truth. So the Lord-Jones wasn't saying, well, tapes have no significance. They do. Of course they do. And radio. Yes. Thanks for misunderstanding. Uh, this very thing was discussed last night after... That's a good reason my speaker should always be here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? I wonder why it was on. Because 
Mr. Ben Rental first. Could I just make two points? Uh, uh, when you were speaking, Ian, it reminded me, I think, if my memory doesn't fail me, that um, the skeptic philosopher David Hume was listening to John Brown of Haddington preach. And he said, that man preaches as, as if Christ stood at his right hand. And that, that struck me as falling in with um, what you were saying. And that's how we would desire it for ourselves. The second point, um, I think it was Isaac Ambrose, wasn't it, who took a, a month off, June. And um, he went to a little wood near Garstang, near Preston. And the result was that beautiful book, Looking Unto Jesus. And this shows the benefit of solitariness with God. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted yeah. to make those yeah. as fitting yeah. in with what Ian was saying. And in God's providence, that may be one reason why men like Bruce and Rutherford were thrown out of a routine and put into corners. And in those corners, they had communication with heaven. And, yeah. yeah. Morris? I don't know if it's a question or a comment. I hope you'll forgive me if it's somewhere in between the two. And I do appreciate very much what you said. Yeah. I really do feel we are in danger in our circles of being caught up in the machinery of uh, church meetings, presbyters and things like that. <coughs> and I personally feel it would be far better for us all if all of us did have a day, a month, or part of a day every week in special prayer in which we were in a place where we could not be interrupted and we poured out our soul to God. I feel convinced and all the troubles that we've had in the free church continuing really for some years now, I've meditated against that. And I feel the time is right for us to try to get back to that and to the other things as well. I'm sorry, that's not quite a question, but following up on what you said. Uh, uh, some of you men must know uh, is the, the br br where Bruce preached here in Larbert. Is, mm -hmm. is the church still yeah. standing? And, and, uh, the, the church. The church has been rebuilt on the same site, but it's an old church. It's the same church that McChain preached in. The very room where McChain took his Bible class is still there. And Bruce's tombstone became decayed and has now been brought inside the church, which I regret in some ways because you can't identify the grave, but he was buried there. And it's known where his grave was, yes. But, and the whole area... <coughs> It's not so greatly changed, and the very place where he was born, treat yourself to lunch at Earth Castle, where he was born, and Earth is only a few miles from here. Um, it would be wonderful, really, to have a meeting at Earth sometimes. I want to find out whether those words down in the cellars are still there, you know, in 1581. Someone cut on the walls down below Earth the words, let them say. Who wrote it? Well, it was the year when Bruce was called for ministry. And when his whole, whole family was against it, Fred suggested Bruce himself cut them. I wonder if they're still there. They should be if they're cut in stone. I'm getting digressed, but what about having a Larbert conference lunch at Earth Castle? Which church is it? The church in Larbert. It's a church, a church with a tower in, in, in the crossroads. Gretchen Larbert. Church in Larbert. Yeah. Church. Oh, the church. Church in Larbert. Oh, the church in Larbert. Back, back to uh, hearing, what is it? Uh, what Quality. Is it? Quality. Quality. <laughs> 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 yes, there might be some profit in that. David? Can I ask you, Ian, if you, 
Uh, is there any signs or evidences that you, like you mentioned, uh, that we are approximate to a time of the Bible, or do you think otherwise? Signs are otherwise. Well, you, you know, I, in God's providence, I, I, I'm, I'm out of Scotland a good deal, but uh, I see things in the United States which encourage me immensely. I mean, McChain and, and, and these books are being read by the thousands. And, and uh, what encourages me too is that there's a grouping of ministers together, of preachers together, and they're not of the same denomination. They would differ on baptism and some of those things, but they've got the same emphasis and, and God is giving them, um, giving them a hearing, giving them openings. And take Alistair Begg at, at uh, Ohio. Uh, his congregation is made up of, it may be, at least a third converted Roman Catholics. And um, exciting things are happening. And, and, and Alistair Begg's um, bookroom is bigger than any bookroom, any bookshop that we have probably in the whole of Britain. And not only new books, but second-hand books. And, and they're not uh, any old second-hand books. They're carefully selected, you know, exactly the sort of books... Well, that's happening widely in parts of America. So, um, and I do think too that the, uh, the hostility to America that sadly we see on our media—it's bound up with the devil. The devil has an idea that America is full of Christians. Well, that's not exactly true, is it? But uh, there are many, many Christians there, and a work of God going on there. And, and from that work, people are being reached around the world. So there is much going on that we that we know nothing of, isn't there? Even even in our own circles, I met a a, a man in Edinburgh who astonished me. He doesn't, you know, not one in, in our circle at all. And he told me that he's absorbed in reading Hugh Martin. I thought, well, you know, things that are happening. Hugh Martin is one of our men. How often do we read him? He's absorbed in reading. You know, so great, wonderful things are happening. Good. Good, that's fine. Perhaps, um, well, first of all, I'd like to thank Ian very much for his, his talk. It's a, a good note to, to close our school on, um, the importance of looking to the Lord for his Holy Spirit to come down upon us. Um, uh, we are thankful for uh, little experiences we've had from time to time in our own lives and under the ministry of others, but we've felt moved and we would love to see more. And we must look to the Lord in faith and expectation and who knows what great things we might yet say maybe even next year at this school speaking of the Lord's working amongst us. You close up there. Oh Lord, our gracious God, we would humble ourselves before thee and give thee thanks for all thy mercy and goodness to us for life itself. We thank thee for enabling us to be together in these days. We pray, Lord, that as we part, that thou wouldst go with us, that we would know more of thy presence, more of thy grace. Help us, Lord, to put aside those things that are hindrances. Use us, Lord, we pray, each one, young and old, 
for thy glory, for the advancement of thy kingdom. Bless the churches and the congregations to which we belong. May there be true reviving in our own hearts and in our midst. So receive our thanks and praise and cleanse us. We pray from every sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please leave your rooms open once you come up and bring all your